Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The biggest myth and the thing I see people talk about online is that they need a mortgage broker either local to them or local to where their property is. I know from experience that this is not the case. We can have a mortgage broker anywhere in the country. It doesn't matter where our property is. It doesn't matter where we are. We can use a mortgage broker from anywhere in the country. They don't need to be with us, all right? The rant is over. We can find the best broker in the country and use them. They're going to be way more beneficial. Rachel from Sphere Home Loan joins us today. I'm going to ask her many questions and you wonderful people in the Facebook group have also asked her some amazing questions that we'll get to as well. But we can't do this without Sharesies. With the Sharesies platform, you can now turn spare change into money for investing with their new roundups feature suited to you. Time to flip your spending habit into an investing one. By linking your bank account to the Sharesies platform and turning on roundups, you can round up extra dollars and cents from your daily spend to hit your investing goals sooner. So if you love the idea of pancakes, pizza or petrol, contributing to your portfolio, get your roundups tally growing today. Sign up to the Sharesies platform using the exclusive promo MMM to get $10 added to your account. All investing involves risk, TNCs and fees apply. So, Rachel, we're going to talk about everything in to do with first home buyers, investing for or lending for investing, developments, and the current climate. Are we ready to do this? We are. Thank you for having me. Let's do it. Now, let's get straight into what you're seeing and feeling and hearing out there in the current climate because it's been a a big journey hasn't it from from where we were sort of 12 to 18 months ago Oh, it's been a really big 12 months, a lot of change. Um, I guess what we're seeing is a lot of movement from first home buyers and also from first time investors. What has really slowed up is the multiple investors. They're really sort of slowed down. And that's been a combination of rate rises, so affordability, but also lending guidelines. So the multiple investors are finding it a lot harder to, to buy another property. So they've really slowed down, but they have been replaced by first home buyers and first time investors. The month of July was really busy for us uh, in New South Wales. There was those stamp duty changes where first home buyers, I guess their 650 cap used to be the cutoff for no stamp duty that went up to 800 and, you know, a sliding scale up to a million. So that really saw a surge in first home buyers in that, you know, that 700 to a million dollar bracket entering the market. I'd say about half of our business is still refinances. So many people are rolling off those low fixed rates. It's a really big thing. A lot of people have had their variable rate 
creep up over time. So there's still a lot of people just looking for the best deal as well. Yeah, it's a really good time to to question whether that's the right loan for you, isn't it, when it's, it's such a competitive market. And as you said, 12, 13 rate rises, you, it's really competitive to be able to see, can I get a discount off it? And I think we'll talk about this later on about the whole retentions and how banks want to keep you, but they can also have visibility about your own situation. So that's right. We'll expand on that. But um, let's talk about first home buyers for a start. Jaden has a question here. Intrigued what the process would be where a parental guarantee is involved. First a mortgage for the purchase of land, then a construction loan a year or so later. How separate are these processes? Would the same guarantee stay in place? Does it require two separate loans and or guarantees at any point? Yeah, good question, Jaden. Um, when you do a parental guarantee, I guess, first of all, we should just briefly explain what a parental guarantee is. So a parental guarantee is when a somebody has little or no deposit and you're securing 20% or around 20% of that property purchase against a family member or a parent's property. So you can essentially borrow 100 or 105% of the property value and 80% gets secured against your property and the remainder against a family member's property. So Jaden, you're asking about, I guess, what, how that happened, like how that changes if there's a construction loan in place. And the answer is not a lot. The guarantee is still the same. Your contribution is the same. The guarantee amount doesn't change, but there may be a need for an extra split. Um, so if you do a construction loan and it's not all ready to go in one time, sometimes a construction loan, you're buying the land and you're saying a year later, you're doing the construction, that's pro- possibly going to be two loans. So you need an approval now to buy the land, but you also need an approval in 12 months time for the build. And that means a whole new application. So your loan would need to be approved at land stage and it would also need to be approved a year later. So a pre-approval tends to only last six months. So you do need to get your loan completely approved again in 12 months if you're doing a construction that far down the track. But from the parent's perspective, they're guaranteeing the same amount. That won't change. Um, it may get split into two if you're doing a land and build, just like a land and build loan would be in two. If you're using a bank that has the guarantee split in two already, that could actually turn into four loans. But most banks we use for parental guarantees, it's just a guarantee in the background. It's a limited guarantee, and that doesn't need to necessarily be split into two loans. So you've explained the parental guarantee and, and this this uh, scenario for Jaden. Who is the risk with when we're, when we're sitting down saying, yeah, I want to entertain this. It sounds like a good idea, but I've got to try and sell it to mum or dad for, for uh, them to be able to come on board. Who's the risk with? Look, there's definitely an element of risk for the parent. They're guaranteeing tw- uh, up to 20 to 25% of the value of your property against their home. Mm. It is a limited guarantee in most cases. So it's not for the whole amount of the mortgage. It's for a limited amount. But if you weren't to pay your mortgage and there was money owed to the bank, your parents still are potentially liable for their mm. guarantee amount. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 20, 25% is with the parents and then the rest is is on your back should, That's right. you, uh, should you, you not choose to make the repayments. Yeah, very good. Uh, Samuel says, do's and don'ts for structuring savings for a deposit. If I was to save our deposit in an account managed by a parent to keep our mitts off it, he's mentioned, is this good, bad or indifferent? So we're, we're talking about 
savings and savings history and bank statements and proof of savings funds and where it's coming from? Has the landscape changed in this space? What, what's, uh, what do the banks want? If you're looking to show a bank that you've got genuine savings, which if you're borrowing 90 or 95% of the value of the property, which a lot of first-time buyers do, you need to show the bank that you've got genuine savings. And for it to be genuine, the majority of the time, it's got to be in your own bank account. Funds held in your parents' account are generally not considered to be genuine savings. You can save them in your parents' uh, account long-term, and then move it into your account maybe three months before you go to get an approval. But it's always best for those funds to be sitting in your account for three months before you actually apply for your home loan. Now, if you weren't borrowing over 90%, if you weren't having a mortgage-insured loan, uh, it wouldn't matter. You don't have to show the bank those funds are genuinely saved and it could all be in your parents' account. Okay. So if we've got a 20% deposit per se, then the savings can essentially be wherever you want it to be. That's right. There's no there's no one checking where your deposit's saved unless you're borrowing in mortgage insurance territory. Yeah, very good to know. Awesome. Shannon asks, what happens when a first home buyer and previous owner combine to buy property, i.e. the partner has never owned a home, but I have? Does he lose all the first home buyer perks and mention that they're Queensland based? Yeah, well, look, in, in most cases you would. Um, I think it's important if you are considering buying together and one of you is a first home buyer and one's not, to really understand what those perks would be. Mm. In Queensland especially, the stamp duty threshold is so low. It's I think it's 500000 in Queensland. I haven't seen many first home buyers actually achieve a purchase under that threshold in such a long time that they may not be missing out on anything. Yeah. Um, so check that. Check if they could get the first home buyer grant. Obviously, that's only for new property. There are cases where um, if one person has, you know, gotten the the grant before, maybe they haven't lived in a property or something like that, that they may be eligible. We always check case by case across all the states. I was actually talking to you the other day about this, John. We had a client a while ago, it was actually in New South Wales though, they had never lived together, but they were buying a house to live in together. Now, my initial thoughts were that they weren't going to be eligible for the stamp duty concession because they were buying a house together. But when we called to check at the state level, uh, because they had never lived together, he actually was eligible for a stamp duty concession. So they paid half stamp duty. So it's always best if there's anything you're not quite sure of to double check both at a state and national level. Mm, interesting, isn't it? And, uh... I think uh, was a Victoria bought the rule in of um, the ten year rule or something. If you haven't owned a home for ten years or something, you yeah. And there's also that's also now attached to the national grant. So yeah. the national uh, well, the first home buyer guarantee scheme, which is where you only need to have the five percent deposit. There were some changes made for that earlier this year, where if you haven't owned a property in the last 10 years, mm. you're still eligible. They've also made some other great changes to that scheme. Things like if you're a resident but not a citizen, you can also achieve that. Yeah, yeah. That grant. Yeah, but that's a really important note that you make is is just check for your individual circumstances because what the, the general rule applies could be different or how it's applied to could be different every time. That's right. And generally when we're talking to a client and it's really early on in the process, that's our job. We check that for you. So will your conveyancer. 
But there might be changes. So we had a, a huge amount of buyers that were, you know, not quite ready to buy until that stamp duty change came in, Ju- in July. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking to those people two months ago and saying, we can't get you into the market right now. And that changed two months later when those stamp duty concessions changed. So it's really important to note that these grants at a state and national level are really ever changing. Yeah, it's crazy. And for someone like you in your office, you've got multiple mortgage brokers and, and working from people, working for people all over the country. You need to be across every state's rules and regulations when it comes to first home buyers, don't you? We we really do, and there's a lot of changes. So we check every, I mean, every client that calls, we do an individual check. Yeah. Okay, Caitlin, uh, bought my first home under the first home buyer deposit scheme, the one in New South Wales. Does this mean I can't refinance until I have 20% equity? So, Caitlin, well done on buying your first home, by the way. But, Rach, what's, uh, what's Caitlin up for? Yeah, look, that's there's going to be so much of this coming up. We are doing so many of these home buyer deposit schemes. Full disclosure, we actually haven't released any yet. We haven't. They're so new that we haven't been, you know, in a position to talk about a release because we haven't done one yet. However, it can. It needs to be refinanced to be released. So you don't need to. You can refinance a loan above eighty percent. You don't need twenty percent equity to release it. A lot of lenders will go to eighty-five percent without mortgage insurance. But some will go, some, you, some people might want to release this at 90% because they've got a particular reason they might want to rent that property out. Um, and they may need to pay mortgage insurance at the time. So you can release it before you've got 20% equity. You just have to look at what the lending criteria is at the time. And that's a, a really interesting position to be in. From a knowledge point of view, it, having a great mortgage broker in your corner is key here because if you can open yourself up to multiple lenders, 15 to 20 of them even, because your loan-to-value ratio is at 80%. That's amazing bargaining power, isn't it? And But there are some lenders that will even go to 85% no LMI. That's right. And something that's really important to know, Caitlin, is it's going to be what the valuation of your property is at the time. And that can vary between lenders. So, you might be a registered nurse, for example, and you might be able to refinance at 90% with no mortgage insurance. However, one bank might say your LVR or loan to volume ratio is 92 with their valuation and the other might say 90. And so there might be one you could refinance to without mortgage insurance and another that you can't. And that could actually be based on the valuation. So you may need to do a few valuations to see what bank suits you best. Yeah, there you go. And I did a, a medicals professionals webinar the other night and and there, a lot of them can lend at 95% now, not just 90 with They can. You know, there's a lot of GPs that we do 95% no mortgage insurance loans for and at standard rates. Crazy. I mean, to think that the banks will lend you up to 95% of the asset is, uh, is astounding, isn't it? They've really got some faith in the good old bricks and mortar. They do. I am very excited they opened it up to registered nurses, though. That was something that there was a long time coming. <laughs> it's a win for the nurses. Do you think it they is. felt bad for them through COVID, so they give them a free kick? I don't think they would have done it for any other reason that they saw it as a, um, a safe bet for themselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They do think about themselves. But yeah, well done to the nurses. That is awesome. Yes. Okay, so any, I suppose, high-level commentary on the, the first home buyer stuff before we move on to investing? Because like... 
Roughly 30% of all homes are bought by first home buyers. So they're a really important part of the market and they do, I suppose, uh, contribute to the state of the market. And and we saw through COVID where a lot of first home buyer incentives and a lot of first home buyers buying their first home or accelerated to buy in because of these government concessions. Um, are, are we seeing that being pulled back now? No, we're seeing it really ramp up, especially using the, the, the guarantee scheme, the government guarantee scheme, which is national, mm. which is the one where the, you know, the government guarantees and you only need a 5% deposit plus your costs. That is really taking off. And there were cases of this, you know, it's come, it's been around for quite a while, but there were places you'd have to line up to get a place. At the moment, there's an abundant amount of places. So a lot of banks have places ready. So we're putting applications in for people getting these grants and getting them approved straight away. Right. Where 18 months ago, we might have to go into like a lottery queue to get a place. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So they're, they're really they're really popular. They're using them in conjunction with other incentives. So they're using the national scheme of the guarantee. They're using a stamp duty concession. And in some cases, they're also using the um, you know, the first home buyer's grant as well if yeah, they're building right. something new. So I think it's it's if you were looking at buying a few years ago and, and, and couldn't get into the market, mm. it's definitely worthwhile checking again what sort of deposit you need. Yeah, so 5%, no other am I. It is, it is capped at an amount of – it's got an income threshold, hasn't it? It's got an income threshold and there's also a property purchase threshold. Yeah. So that changes between – between areas and states, yeah, but it's it's a really good option for a lot of people getting into the market, and it can be new or existing. Yeah, and up until you know, even in June, it was still a lot harder because people buying. I'm actually talking about New South Wales at the moment. You know, people buying at eight fifty were still needing to pay full stamp duty. So you'd have to have your only five percent deposit, but then you'd be paying stamp duty. But now you're not paying stamp duty. So it's a really big difference. At eight hundred thousand, you're paying no stamp duty. You need a five percent deposit. I mean, that's forty five thousand getting into the market in a Sydney market. Yeah, it, it's a game changer, isn't it? That eight hundred to a mil even, which buys you something half decent in Sydney now. Like I did an exercise with a client the other day at eight fifty, uh, you're still only paying ten grand in stamp duty. Like you, you take that every day of the week. That is right. It, it's 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 reduced all the way up until a million. Mm, it's awesome. Okay, great stuff, Rach. We're going to take a break and then we'll come back and talk investing. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Rachel. So uh, investing. When we're talking investing, we're, we're, I think there's a now a hybrid version of what we've just discussed, first home buyer and investment, because a lot of people are coming to us saying, look, I want to buy this property. I want to live in it for 12 months and then turn it into investment straight away because they're taking advantage of those things that we've just mentioned. Or I'm going to stay in it until I need to get the loan to value ratio down, and then I'm going to turn it into an investment. So Every time I ask for someone's borrowing capacity, they come back to me and say, I'm, I can lend 600,000 as owner-occupier or I can lend 700K for investment. And then the next person comes to me and says, almost the reverse, I can buy 700 for owner-oc, uh, but only 600 for investment. Talk to me about that before we go down the investment path. Well, your, your borrowing capacity when you're buying an investment property is based on a few different things. So you might be paying rent in Sydney and buying an investment property. Obviously, we've still got to factor your rent into the case if you're going to be doing that. So one person might be paying high rent, one person might be living at home with their parents. And so that could be some of the differences of being able, what that difference would be between investment and owner-occupied. Generally, you can buy more for an owner-occupied property based on the rate and the, the lending buffers that the banks take into, into account. But if you're living at home with your parents and you're buying an investment property, generally you'd be able to borrow more than if you're buying an owner-occupied property because you're, um, you know, the rent is only a, a nominal amount of rent. So when you're living at home, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the banks are still going to take in a standard amount of rent for that area, aren't they? Even though I'm they living use- at home rent-free? The most banks, even if you're not paying rent at home, will use a notional rent. And that might be something like $700 a month, but a lot less than I'm seeing a lot of, I've got a lot of clients at the moment that would be living in major cities in Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney, paying quite high rents and, you know, buying a property regionally as an investment property. So, you know, the rent that they may be paying might be a thousand or two thousand a week. Mm. So that would really impact their borrowing capacity. If you're borrowing for investment purposes, there's a lot of different things to be taken into account. Yeah, there you go. Tip for you folks. If you need to borrow more, go and stay at home with mum and dad. So there are not banks out there that will just, I'll lend you more for investment. Like I suppose what I'm saying is there's not investment focused lenders out there. It's just the people's circumstances. There are definitely banks that have their calculators are geared towards investors. There are definitely banks that have more of an appetite for investors and they might take a higher percentage of rental income. They might allow us to use the tax deductions, negative gearing in in their calculator, and that will really affect how much you can borrow. So there's definitely banks that we, you know, we know that when we're doing a servicing calculator for a particular investment that some banks are going to be more friendly than others. Awesome. Okay. Question from another Rachel. How to use equity in our principal place of residence to purchase investment property? How to structure loans, etc. So there's a fair bit to to unpack here. So let, let's first of all talk to Rachel and everyone else who's listening about equity. So equity is 
the value minus the debt equals the equity. So if something's valued at 600000 and we've got a debt of, say, 400000 you've got $200,000 of equity there. Now, the banks will say, we can allow you to use the equity, but we won't let you use it all. Uh, depending on your occupation as to how much we'll allow you to, to extract out, but uh, commonly it's about 80% of the value. So if we went and done, did this calculation, 600K times by 80% is 480,000 minus our debt of 400K. There's 80K of usable equity there to take and go and do what you want with it. Buy a boat, buy a property, buy whatever it is. So is, is that a fair explanation, Rach? That is a fair explanation. So the usable equity in your property, which might be 80 or 90%, depending on whether you want to pay mortgage insurance, depending on whether you um, what your profession is, generally we would create a separate split against your home for whatever the usable equity is. And that might be enough to buy, uh, that would be used as the deposit for your investment property. So the best way to, um, I guess, use the equity in your owner-occupied to purchase an investment is by working out how much equity you have and then getting enough of a deposit and costs for the investment property against your owner-occupied. We make sure we leave that in a separate split so your accountant knows what's for investment purposes and what's your own home. So when you go to your accountant at the end of the year, they don't mind what the loan is secured against. That doesn't mean anything to them. But we need to have it separated for purpose. So you extract the equity against your own home for deposit and costs on the next property. And then you go and find a property and you would actually borrow 80% or 90% against the value of that property. And the split against your home and the split against the new investment loan would be added together to be the tax deductible debt for the investment property. So I guess in, I guess in essence, you can borrow 100% plus all associated costs for an investment property if you have two things, which is sufficient equity in your own property, as well as the income to cover any shortfalls in the bank's buffers when we add in the rental income for the investment property. Well explained. So when they're taking into account the rental aspect of that property, you might have to produce a a rental appraisal as to say what this property might rent for. Do they take into account 100% of that rent amount or do they take into account a vacancy rate or? They'll use generally the banks vary between 60 to 80% with the majority of them doing 75% to 80% of the value of the rent that they'll take. The other thing they do is they add a buffer onto the variable repayment. And this buffer has changed in recent times. And this is one of the things that have made it harder for investors to hold multiple properties. So they might the the repayment for your investment property, you might have a, a loan of I'm just gonna work this out. You might have a loan of say five hundred thousand for an investment purposes, and it's interest only. So because it's interest only, you're paying, let's say, $2,500 a month. But the bank uses the principal and interest repayment, not over 30 years, but over 25 years. And then they also add a 3% buffer on top of that. So your real repayment might only be 2,500, but you've got to be able to cover something like 4,100 in the bank's calculator, which is a lot more than you're going to be paying. And you might be getting, let's say 500 a week in rent, which is 
2100. So your real gap is only 400 a month, but the bank might only take 80% of that. So the gap is going to be bigger and bigger. You might actually have to show the bank that you've got 2500 a month yes. in user in, in income, even though you're only contributing 400 a month to that property. Because of taking into account the buffers and everything else. The buffers, yeah. the vacancy, and then also the higher repayment. So if I've got a lender that's going to take into account 60% of my rent amount versus 80% of my rent amount, surely I'm going to that lender that's going to take into account 80% because that means I can maybe borrow more money? If you need to. So a lot of people who are buying, especially their first investment property, serviceability isn't an issue. Mm. You know, they've paid their own home down a little bit. They've got equity in that. They've both got good incomes. They're buying an investment property and, and they've got the choice of all lenders. So if you have a choice of all lenders, you're going to go with the one that gives you the best features yep. and the best rate. But if I've got a choice of four lenders for you because of, you know, serviceability is tight and that might be the case, we would just compare the four and negotiate with those four. Yeah. So I suppose I'm, I'm going into bat for someone out there that's wanting to aggressively build a portfolio, uh, hasn't paid down a massive amount of their home debt and, and has a reasonable income but not outstanding. They just need to be really st strategic or have someone that is strategic in their corner. They do. And sometimes even if serviceability is not an issue for the first investment property, we'll place a client with a lender that is quite friendly with their calculator for investors because we know their long-term plan is to buy more. So we want them to, you know, go somewhere that's going to be fortuitous for the long term. Yeah, very good. And just a tip for everyone listening, if uh, you're going to your mortgage broker and they're coming back to you with one option and one option only, that's a red flag because there are many lenders out there and we need for our own knowledge and confidence, we need to compare it against something. So I don't know about what what you guys do, Rach, but I'm I'm thinking I'd like three, if not four, comparisons to to be able to then choose from and shortlist. Yeah, and look, there are cases where there is one lender. I've had a I've had a client where you know because of their circumstance, and I, there was one where she was actually getting a um a a grant from a university. And yeah. the, the income was really tough that I was using. Um, there was a choice of one bank mm. and I still compared all of the banks for her, but I also had to say of these banks, only one of them is actually going to take this sort of scholarship income that you're presenting me with. So yeah. I would love to say there's more, but there wasn't. But in the that's an outlier. In the majority yeah. of cases, you've got a choice of a number of banks and there should be a comparison given to you in the credit proposal. Yeah, and I was chatting to someone last week uh, as an AFL football and Westpac have been very kind to them in the last few years. They're, they do 90% no LMI. So yeah, the 99% of the time they will use Westpac, but I suppose the message is from a mortgage broker, they should be saying, explaining that to you and not just quick and easy choosing one that uh, works for them. Yeah, we, ha we have to take a client on the journey and, and you know, there's got to also understand uh, as a client, you still want to understand the why. Like, why yeah. is why are we going to this bank? Totally. Um, but um, the most clients that we would see are actually choosing off the comparison sheet. Yeah, no, great. All right, Ian, trying to use my equity from my principal place of residence to purchase an investment property and from that hopefully purchase another. How much of your cash flow from an investment does the bank see as income? Now, we've answered that 
in that previous um, commentary in respect to anywhere from 60 to 80% of the rental income comes into play. But yeah, and anything else to add to that? Yeah, well, look, years ago, and, and people do get confused of why it's so hard to hold investment properties right now. Mm. Um, and I would say a huge amount of my my client base is investors, and a lot of them are struggling. A lot of them not struggling to make their payments, but struggling to buy their next property or even to refinance because they can't, on the bank's calculators, service the debt that they currently have, even though they did a few years ago. Um, and that is because of a lot of the, I guess, the restrictions that are coming in for investors on the bank's calculator. So years ago, if you were paying interest only on a loan, the banks would use that in their calculators. But now they're using that principal and interest mm. over a shorter term and the big fat buffer are only using a percentage of the rent. So there's not a real answer to your question of how much cash flow for each investment. Every time we have a scenario like this, we have to put all of your information, your personal information, income-wise, the properties information and any other debts that you hold and we put that into the calculator and it will allow you, to, I guess, to show for your particular circumstance what you can borrow. But high level, they take 80% of the rent and then you need a 3% buffer on top of the on top of what you're investing in. Yeah, it uh, becomes quite harsh, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So, and and to expand on that, talk to us about our age. Like here I am at 32. <laughs> I've got 30 more years left of working potentially. Someone that's, that's 55 might only have five to six years left of work. How do banks assess that? Well, different banks will assess age restrictions very differently. So some banks, if you're borrowing for your own home and you're over 45, they will want to reduce the term. They will want to see you borrow you know, a 25-year term rather than a 30-year term. Some banks will allow you to use what's called an exit strategy. So we might say, even though I'm 50 and I'm only working for 20 more years, I want a 30-year loan term, but in 20 years' time, I have an exit strategy. Mm. The exit strategy is that I have sufficient super to pay out my home loan at the time or that I'm planning on downsizing my home when I get to retirement age and buy a smaller home, and that's my strategy. So you can still borrow up to 30 years at any age, any age, as long as you've got a sufficient exit strategy and the bank that you want to use is accepting of that. So banks vary greatly in how they view exit strategy. Again, just speaks to having multiple options up your sleeve or, or having someone that knows that as well. But that exit strategy, is that a, a one-liner from the mortgage broker? Is it a statement of advice from a financial planner? How elaborate does that need to be? Depending on the bank, generally we just need to state the exit strategy. So we, if, if your exit strategy is super and you've got plenty of super to be able to pay out what your loan will be on retirement, we just give the super statement. Mm. If it's downsizing, we would show the bank what you may be downsizing to. Downsizing is only a, an acceptable exit strategy for about half the lenders on our panel. Right. So not all banks consider downsizing to be a sufficient exit strategy. But generally, it's not a one-liner. It's something we really have to look at and go, well, how do you plan to pay out this mortgage? We do have a a duty of care to make sure that you're protected as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, There's a question here. Tips for assessing whether your current mortgage broker used for principal place of residence would also be good for investment property, apart from the obvious question to ask whether they are a property investor themselves. What's your view on this? I've certainly got one, but I'd love to hear yours, Rach. 
Look, if you've used a um, if you've used a mortgage broker before and they they were great, chances are they're going to be great in the next transaction. I don't think there's a reason to change mortgage brokers just because you're doing a different type of transaction. Most brokers would be quite proficient in both owner-occupied and investment lending. Um, unless you saw a reason that you thought maybe they only work with first-home buyers and they don't have a lot of investment experience, then you might start looking around. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the key for me is uh, who are they working with on a regular basis? And if they're, if they're doing owner-occupied loans and they're not doing constantly investment-focused loans, then look, it's watch this space for me. I just, I just want some comfort knowing that they're they're dealing with investment lending all the time because like you've just given us half an hour of gold today that tells us that there's is just ever changing and there's so many different lenders out there and so many different scenarios and and brokers have got to be all over it and if it's hard enough just navigating the owner rock clientele let alone understanding investment rules. it is and and john you and I, we met 10 years ago and i was fresh out of the bank at that time and i probably would have been more inclined to cross securitize alone at that time. Did you? I never, I never knew that. I've evolved now. <laughs> You've evolved. <laughs> and so, you know, over time of being a broker and, and sort of getting, you know, trained more in mortgage broking rather yeah. than bank lending, you evolve. So mm. you kind of want to know if there is a bit of experience there because you don't want to be given the incorrect advice. Because mm. it can tie you in knots and I am quite passionate about this because I have seen it happen numerous times is where it can set you back five years if you get the wrong structure. Eleanor, I don't understand the paying interest only on investment property rather than principal and interest. And then you start paying principal after a certain period. How does that help someone if you're not selling for a capital profit before you start paying the principal? Eleanor, that's a really good question, isn't it? It is. And I think it's something that a lot of people have trouble getting their heads around Mm. when they start investing. Why am I only paying the interest? And I think the best way to explain that is telling you a personal story, which is I have an investment property that I bought over a decade ago, and I bought that investment property for $320,000. I have paid interest only on that property for over 15 years. And every five years, you've got to refinance it because you can only get five years interest only. So, but I keep refinancing every five years. I've only ever paid interest and I still owe $320,000, but that property is now worth $650,000. And the rent on that property more more than pays for the interest and always has, even when I first bought it. But now obviously the rent goes up, but the repayment has stayed pretty much the same. Now, I don't plan to sell that property until I retire. And when I do retire, I'm hoping it's worth a little bit more again. But you're right, there's no point in just paying interest if there's not a capital gain, but we've seen in the Australian property market time and time again, there is a capital gain. Properties do go up in value. And the strategy is, I guess, by only paying interest on that property, it allows me to focus on my own mortgage, which I still have, and I'm still paying off. Yeah. And and I think I've done the same thing. I've built a portfolio that's primarily been investment only, uh, sorry, interest only. It's only been interest only. Now, Lately, like when I first started investing in 1924, I think um, the interest only was just what you do as an investment and you never got questioned whether you wanted to pay P&I, it just continually rolled over into interest only. But lately, the interest only periods are maybe three to five years. And then at that stage, you have to basically reapply, don't you? And and otherwise, it, it may actually default 
to principal and interest. So just maybe talk to us about that for a bit. That's right. And it's not the banks, it's the government that have kind of said, hey, we've got too much interest-only loans on our books and they've they've put some things in place to encourage banks to make you pay down those investment loans. And some of those levers that were pulled were things like making interest-only loans higher in rate than principal and interest loans. So we did see naturally a few years ago when that came into play, some people changed to principal and interest, but that was the first time we'd ever seen that happen. So we were comparing the rates and seeing what was best. Now the interest only in principal and interest repayments have gotten a lot closer again. So I would say 90% of my investment clients are paying just interest only on their investment properties. And we regularly sit down with people that do want to pay principal and interest and say, well, hey, this would be the repayment. If you paid principal and interest across your portfolio, you'd be paying another 3000 a month. Yeah. Yes, great. If you can pay that, pay it. But let's pay that 3000 a month onto your mortgage, which is your non-tax deductible debt. Let's get rid of that mortgage before we even discuss paying down these investment debts. Yeah, and I think that was the big one for me, why I'd never done it, was if I had my principal place of residence, I could push all my money into an offset against that bad debt, that non-deductible debt. Or if I didn't have it yet, I could put that cash aside for that deposit on the principal place of residence that I'm going to buy. Or I could put that money into lifestyle choices, or I could keep it up my sleeve for emergency buffers, next deposit on investment, et cetera. The key for me was it was it, it's always in my control, whereas if I had to give it to the banks, I had to apply to get it back right now. that That's always been my method, but uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. When you look at a, a loan amount of, uh, I'm just going to do an example, 450000 principal and interest at 6%. I, I think that's probably about right in terms of the interest rate maybe that we might, might be able to capture. It's uh, it's about two seven two thousand seven hundred a month. If I change that to interest only, it's down to two thousand two hundred and fifty a month. So it's about a what's that five hundred four fifty a month difference, right? And as you mentioned before, if you've got that across three or four properties, that's a lot of money that you can be putting elsewhere or just sitting in cash buffers for a rainy day or I'm going on maternity leave so I need extra cash, those sort of um, examples in people's life. That is completely right. And I have seen it before where people say they want to pay principal and interest, they buy an investment property and then two years later they sell that investment property because it was too hard to hold. Because you want to be able to hold a property without it changing your lifestyle. So that cost to hold is a really big thing. And when we do talk to a client that's you know thinking about investing, we'll go through all of that with them to talk about you know what's important to them, but also I guess financially what might be the most viable as well. Yeah, cool. Well done, Eleanor. Great question there. So on the investment piece, we also want to talk about I suppose refinancing and when we when we would do that and why. So. Just, just generally talk to us about refinancing and, and how your team approaches that because you mentioned at the start of the show that it, it's very common at the moment. So why is it so common and, and what's generally involved in that process? Yeah, well, there's two parts that a lot of people are refinancing at the moment to get better rates. So it is, look, I'm coming off my fixed rate of you know 2.1% and my variable is going to be six. I want to get the best rate that I can in the market. And I think while rates are high, people are really trying to get the best rate they can. 
But when it comes to investors and investing, um, and there's multiple properties involved, a lot of people are refinancing to extend their interest-only periods out or to go their whole loan period out again. So I guess we're talking about cost to hold. A lot of investors are coming with properties that are principal and interest. And because rates are up, it's, you know, it's a lot harder to hold. And we're rolling all of that portfolio over to five years interest only. And that's a big thing to do. So people are refinancing for two reasons, rate, but also cost to hold properties. So obviously when you refinance, you can go back out to 30 years again. If yeah, you choose and- to. Which is great. Which which would lower your servicing though for the next purchase, wouldn't it? If if you push that back out to thirty, it would. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people with multiple properties at the moment though are just trying to weather the storm. Mm. They're trying to yes. get their portfolio into a way that they, while the rates are high, that they can hold them all, that they can still have a great lifestyle, and that's what their priority is. So I would say that's the. I don't think I have a lot of clients that have three or four properties that are here trying to get their next. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, they should be because some good bargains out there at the minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tiffany says, refinancing, if you've recently changed jobs, how long do you usually need to have been in the new job before refinancing to avoid unnecessary rejections and have the best options? So this climate has changed as well, hasn't it, in terms of do I need to be full-time, do I need to be part-time, how long have I been in the industry, have I changed jobs in the last three months, am I still on probation? Talk to us about uh, about that. Look at me. Employment is actually the one thing that I think banks have loosened up on in the last few years. They're really understanding a lot more about reality of people are working contract work. There's a lot more casual employment out there and people are jumping ship a lot quicker than they used to. And I think the banks are finally caught up to that. So I've seen a lot of relaxing of policies across different banks in the last few years of, you know, people will take one day employment, people will take three months casual. People will take, you know, a lot of the industries we're using 100% of overtime. A lot of the time we're using casual at 100%. Uh, I've got a client I'm actually working on at the moment where they've only been casual for one month at their job. And initial thoughts, oh, that's not going to work. But we've actually found a solution for them where the bank has got a policy where if you've been working 12 months casual, even if you've changed jobs, they'll look at the 12 months total. So, you know, do not get disheartened about job changing. You just need to find the bank and the policy that's going to fit you. Sometimes when we say to people, look, you've only got a choice of, let's say, one bank because of this jumping around of jobs, they're worried because it means they're going to pay a higher rate, but that's not the case. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter what bank we use, really. We're going to negotiate a great rate. Like, yeah. they, we, we play them off against each other. We take the offer from one bank to the other. They don't know that you have to go there. So don't worry about the rate. We'll get you a great rate at any bank. But don't, um, I would not stress about changing jobs. When you said unnecessary rejections, you wouldn't put an application in unless you knew it was going to be approved. Yeah. You know, we're not putting an application into a bank unless we know that that is going to be approved. But in saying that, if you're not a mortgage broker and you're out there getting your runners dirty doing it yourself, you, you would definitely not know. Yeah, well, even I, I just don't understand why people would not use a mortgage broker. There isn't a cost. There isn't, <laughs> well, there isn't preaching a cost to the in, converted here, but there isn't a cost involved. No. So, like Tiffany, if you're looking at you know looking for the best option for you, you go to a mortgage broker, yeah. and they will do all of this legwork for you. They will not charge you. Um, if they do, then you know maybe you can talk to them about that. But generally, there's no charge, and they will find the best option for you. Yeah. No. Oh, absolutely no brainer. Yeah, don't jump down my throat about it, Rachel. I'm passionate <laughs> as you are about it. 
So uh, the second part of Tiffany's question was, who is likely to be in mortgage prison and unable to refinance? Now, seems like we've discussed this previously um, a few weeks ago, but <laughs> this mortgage prison business, everyone's talking about it, saying, well, I'm, I'm trapped into my current lender and I can't go anywhere because my servicing's reduced because uh, the interest rates have risen, so I'm, I'm stuck and they're just putting up the rates and I've just got to cop it. Yeah, look, a lot of people that are coming to us at the moment actually can't refinance. So they are in what's called a mortgage prison. I wouldn't let that get you down. We can still negotiate. You can still negotiate with your current lender if you if you can't go somewhere else. You can still go and negotiate and try to get the best rate that you can. And I think the banks are really coming to the party with if they're not matching offers that we're giving them, they're coming really close. So when we get a client that's looking at their rate, the first place we go is their existing lender and see if we can renegotiate there. And then we will go out to the market and get all the rates that we can. And then we give the choice to say, this is what we can get at the bank that you're with. And this is what we can get across the market. Um, A lot of people though are getting money out or they're wanting to extend their loan term. So that always includes a refinance, but a lot of the time you can just reprice a loan. Okay, and that's really important to understand. We can reprice or we can refinance. Now, reprice, as you said, ask the question, get it done that day, no application. Refinance, a full set of documents to need to assess your current situation. That's right. And the way we do business has changed. And we did a lot more refinancing than repricing in current years because the banks weren't as competitive for their own customers, which was just madness because yeah. it costs a lot more money to get a new client than to keep the ones you have happy. So we've got a few full-time staff now that their full-time job is just repricing our book. They go back to that bank and say, hey, we can get this rate with this bank now. You can choose to match this or we're going to take this client elsewhere. Now, the client doesn't even, we're doing this in the background. The client doesn't even know. We're just going back to the client and saying, hey, you know, ANZ have come to the party. Here's your new rate. You shouldn't need to refinance just for rate. Yeah. So I heard on the grapevine that the banks know whether you our client can physically refinance or not based on the current situation and their servicing because of this thing called technology. Yeah, that is true. So there's a few of the banks that have the technology that when you call and say, hey, I want a new price, they actually kind of know by your banking um, behaviour whether you can refinance or not. And they definitely have they've definitely put things in place to be able to know that. And they don't want to give everybody the best price if mm. they don't have to. Um, I always think it's best to go through the broker channel for that because we can take other offers to them. Yeah. Okay. So just tell a good story on behalf of the client as opposed to the client direct to the bank. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Great. And and there's no situation because the scenario is you ring up the front desk and the the front desk says, I can't do anything for you. Okay, put me through to the retentions team. Retentions team, look at your situation and say, yeah, this this person's bluffing. They need to stay with us. We're not giving any discount. Or this person's maybe in a not a bad position. Their loan to value rate their loan to value ratio is strong and their servicing strong, they're likely to leave. Okay, here's half a percent off. That's right. And there's some some banks have a section that have a different pricing delegation and those that pricing delegation is only after the discharge is signed. So they want to know that you're really serious yeah. before they'll give you the best price. And that's really sad, but it's just it's just the way they do business. If there's you know, if there's two in ten that can refinance, why would they want to be giving the best price they can to everyone who everyone. can't? Now I know that sounds like they should just do it, but their job is to make money and they're going to do that if they can. Yeah. Well, surprising, isn't it? 
Uh, Sophie Jane asks, how often can you ask your mortgage broker for a rate review for your home loan? We're sort of, we're in the, that conversation now. Uh, I've, I've generally said, look, every six months, go back in. If your situation's changed, go back in. If valuations have changed, like if you think your property's gone up in value or you've paid some down, that will increase servicing. What, what do you do with your clients? Do you uh, ask for a rate review every six months, 12 months, two years? We do every 12 months all the time and we always have for every client, but in the current climate, we're doing it a lot more. So we're probably doing more so every three months now because the rates are changing all the time. And every time those rates have gone up, the banks have been a little cheeky. So what they're doing is they haven't they haven't put their rates up more than the 0.25, but they've offered more of a discount for new customers. So every few rate rises, we're going back to the bank to renegotiate for the existing banks because we've noticed that little slip in the variable just been creeping up a little bit more than it should. So I would say three to six months at the moment, but you know, generally, I think every 12 months in a normal environment when rates aren't moving is pretty fair. Yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, anonymous. Is there an age range where you won't get a mortgage? So I think we answered that piece, uh, that that part, Rach, in, in the sense that- We did. Um, yeah, we, we can get a loan if we've got an exit strategy. When subdividing block with principal place of residence to add a second dwelling, can you loan sub fees slash planning, et cetera, or just the building amount? And and just a backstory, we own our property approaching age 50, want to subdivide and build, son stay in our current principal place and we live next door. He has a disability, so wanting to make sure he has a secure housing and support before we die. So first of all, that's extremely noble and, and to be able to help out your son, that's amazing. Um, so there's an emotional component that says we've got to get this done. So we're going to kick down some doors to ensure that we get the best loan structure possible and we're going to get a green light to be able to build what we want to build here. So this is moving into finance for development, isn't it? And and talking about planning fees through council and engineering um, costs and, and all these research fees that we need to come up with before we actually start the build. So let's uh, let's talk to that, Rach. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to, if you've got a block and you're looking at subdividing it and building another property, there's two steps in that process. Generally, we would start with one, step one, would be getting some money out at the start. So you might have a block of land. I don't know the figures, but let's just say that your your block right now is worth a million dollars. And let's say you've got a hundred thousand owing on it still. You might come and say, well look, we want to we want to do this build down the track. But there's a lot of things, a lot of costs that are going to happen before you start building. There's subdivision, there's architects fees and all of those things. So you would actually borrow, so you get some cash out now. So you might borrow a couple of hundred thousand now or less, just depending on how much you needed. And that would be enough to do a lot of the things that are going to be out of the build contract, like subdivision and planning, architect. And then you would do a step two. And step two would be the build loan. So that's when you actually have a fixed price contract for the build that you're going to do. Now, let's say the build is 500000 And let's say the bank values the property at a million dollars now, but hey, that when you put that build on it, we think it might be worth 1.5. The bank will then lend on a to be completed valuation. So they'll look at it and say, well, now it's worth this, we're going to lend more. And as long as serviceability wise, you can, uh, you can achieve that. You generally look at equity and serviceability. So you can look at the end value. 
But because some things are going to be out of that fixed price contract, you just want to make sure you get those funds first. So do we go and borrow more than we need to build? Is that the, the way around it? We, we get I would a... always borrow more than I needed if I could. Okay. Because there's always going to be things that come up that you're not expecting, especially with a subdivision. Mm. So I think it's really, really important that you get the right advice, not just finance-wise, but also when you're doing a development like this to make sure you know exactly what that project's going to cost you before you start. Um, and you might get a builder come out and say, well, this build's going to cost 500000 but you might you want to get a really good idea about any other costs that are associated first. Yeah, okay. So let's say engineering, planning, DAs, all these, uh, I suppose, research fees at the start are going to cost us an extra $50,000. We'd want to get a build loan for five hundred fifty dollars in that example. Well, You'd actually want to get the the any of those extra Ks, that 50, that extra 50, you want to get that out of the contract. You want to get that first mm. because the bank a lot of the time wants you to put all of your funds in before they start funding mm. whatever that build is. So, I mean, it's going to be, I'd have to have all the information, but generally you would get, if someone was doing this sort of scenario, I'd suggest they get as much as they can out at the start. So before. how can they get it out at the start if it's in the build contract? So if you would get money out at the start, if you have sufficient equ- sufficient equity in the property now, so there's nothing yep. stopping you. If you've got equity in the property as it stands now before the subdivision, before you build, you've probably got a 50, I'm guessing you've got a bit of equity in that property yep. and just borrow that bit extra now gotcha. um, before you do the build loan. Love it. Okay. So there it is. Get some equity out that covers all your DAs and, and uh, research and then maybe even your 5% build deposit or 10% and then loan the remainder from the bank as complete loan. Anything with subdivision, have more money around than what you need and knowing that you can just do a limit reduction when you're finished. Yep. So for this person at age 50, uh, not out of the realms of possibility just because they're 50. No. And even if you were 60, it wouldn't be out of the realms of possibility because you're technically, you're looking at... uh, the bank's going to look at what your owner-occupied loan is now, but they're also going to look at the next bit as an investment purchase. And, you know, exit strategies is a lot easier for investment than owner-occupied. Awesome. Kalisha, now this is a curveball for you. When purchasing in a trust, how is the borrowing power of the trust determined? So not the trust that you and I have. It's a, a trust structure to buy the property in. So they've bought the property. It's in maybe a unit trust or a discretionary trust. I'm, I'm not illegal, so I won't go and uh, explain how that's structured, but that's the buying entity. You're going to the bank or the mortgage broker and saying, look, this is my buying entity. I own this property as a trust. How do I how do I get some lending? Yeah, well, firstly, Kalisha, trust borrowing for normal investment properties has really decreased in the last decade. It used to be a lot more happening in, in a trust. There were a lot more things that accountants were coming to us and saying, please set this up in a trust. That is happening very little in the current climate. So I would check with your accountant, you know, are you buying in a trust and what's the purpose of that and what are the benefits? If you are buying in a trust though, the trust, the borrowing power of the trust is determined by your income. So you would be, so you just say you and your um, partner were you know, forming a trust to buy a property, you're still going to be doing a personal guarantee and your income can be taken into account. So the fact that that trust isn't um, doesn't have any income wouldn't stop it borrowing because you have income. No. Not all banks look at it that way, yeah. but there are banks that are quite good at trust lending. Yeah, and I think if you're sitting down with your accountant and your accountant straight away says you need this property in a trust, I'd have a red flag. Personally, I'd be saying, well, why? 
what's the pros and cons? Because most accountants, no disrespect, are not mortgage brokers and are not over the lending conditions and take into account a lot of other things that are external to accounting. So I think we need to, in an ideal world, we would have mortgage broker, accountant and um, what do you call it? Property coach or buyer's agent in the same room together when we're designing the strategy, right? In the last four years, every client that has come to our office to say they're buying in a trust and we've sort of you know, given them the options of a trust, when they've sat down with their accountant, they've come back and said, actually, we're not buying in a trust. Mm. So it has been four years since I've actually done a loan in a trust for that exact reason. A lot of people think they're buying in a trust, but when they get that accounting advice, yeah. then they're not buying in the trust. Yeah. And that could be things like capital gains or, you know, there's certain, there's certain things that you may give up by buying in a trust that you would keep in your own name. Yeah. And I've bought and sold in in a trust entity. I think if it's more of a short-term investment like yes. a development might be the way to yeah, go. Yeah, the unit trust for development still popular. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And uh, we'll, we're sort of starting to round things out here, but this one is not an ideal situation. Brody says, can it be harmful to have a bank value your house if they value it lower than what you purchased the house for? So context from Brody, we have an LVR, loan to value ratio of 85%, creeping towards 80. So looking to see if we can get a better rate elsewhere. Just worried as I think we may have paid too much, so don't want to have it valued if it could affect things. Now, high level Brody, the bank's not going to come rushing for your money if the valuation is lower than what you paid for it. If you're continuing to pay your mortgage each month, it's not a margin call like we have in shares where they'll say, look, we need to get some money off you because the, the value's dropped. That doesn't happen with residential property in Australia. But from a, a valuation point of view, Rach, what's, uh, let's expand on that. Yeah, Brody, I wouldn't worry if the bank valued it lower. I, it's just something that I've seen people go into negative equity. You know, over a decade ago, I've seen people buy in certain mining towns and their house, their LVR is now 115 percent where we revalue it and the bank's not coming and asking you for anything they just have to deal with that so don't please don't worry about having the bank value your house now if you're creeping towards 80 though it might be beneficial for you to get a few valuations done at a few different banks because your rate is generally going to go down under 80 percent and if your bank is saying it's still 85 what about if another bank values it at 80? Some banks have a big variance in their valuations. And a lot of the time we get somebody in this situation, we'll do multiple valuations with multiple banks. There's no cost in doing that. And then we'll say, well, look, you could have this option with this bank because their valuation was so high. And these are the options around that. Yeah, great. Okay. So don't stress. It's uh, it'll, it'll work itself out in the wash. I suppose from a logistics point of view and, and making money, we don't want to be selling if we think that the market's dipped or we think we may have paid too much for it from the beginning. Uh, we, we don't ideally want to sell at a loss. So we need to be thinking more longer term when we're assessing the options there. So Yeah. But um, I think I think you just he's looking at his rate and I think you're going yeah. to be absolutely fine there. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's great. All right, Rach, thank you very much for coming on today. Um where do we where do we find you if you if someone's listening in saying, "Gee, she's a smart lady. We need to get 
her on our team. What's where do we where do we hit you yeah, up? Yeah, look, we have an amazing team of mortgage brokers. We work nationally. If you reach out to us at hello at spherehomeloans.com.au, someone will come back to you and we will help as best we can. Awesome. Okay. And there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well. Fantastic questions. Uh, we, we continue to learn stuff here every day and really appreciate you taking the time in the Facebook group to put some questions through for us today. Continue to put them in and, and give commentary on them. We, we, we love them. We appreciate them. But yeah, thanks for allowing us into your is once again today. I'm John Pigeon and you've been listening to My Millennial Money. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 